0: Would you pray with me? Lord God, speak to us from your word that we might find life in you. May we hear from you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a fast world. Coronavirus has slowed us down a little bit, but society with Differing levels of caution is keen to get back to the always accelerating pace we're used to. And our breakneck speed is constantly imploring us to live exclusively in the present. There's very little pushing us to slow down and and look back. We suffer for this because when we're only really seeing our immediate context, we actually have a little thin slice of information by which to assess reality. Our judgment is impaired, and we lack perspective. Our Old Testament reading today is from Nehemiah 9. This chapter is one of many stopping points throughout the biblical narrative, where the narrative stops, and the people take time to recall and interpret by the Spirit of God what has gone before. So in light of this, we today are asking, what can stopping to reflect teach us about God and His character? And what can it teach us about us and our character? God willing, as we look into Nehemiah 9, we can learn the importance of stopping to reflect, to interpret what has gone before so that we do not deceive ourselves. Now, we're really good at deceiving ourselves. I work primarily with law students, so I'm going to pick on them. You know, there's a strong narrative in law school that Everyone is really, really busy. And it's true for a lot of them. It's not actually true for all of them. But nevertheless, the narrative is secure. You are busy. And when you're busy, you start building up a list of all the amazing things you could do with your life if you just had a bit more time. I'll exercise more, you'll say. I'll, I'll devote more time to scripture and to prayer. I'll be a better friend to those around me, to old friends. I'll, I'll learn to cook. I'll start volunteering. I'll be more involved in community. I'll start writing for fun. I'll sit on my porch drinking tea, having deep and satisfying thoughts if I just had more time. Well, you know, be, be careful what you wish for because, of course, last semester, halfway through, all these... Law students got sent home, told not to come into campus because of coronavirus, classes went online. And for most people, they suddenly had a lot more space in their life, a lot more time. Now I know this corona tide hasn't given everyone more time, if you've got kids who are sent home from school you haven't really had much chance to perfect your sourdough pre-fermentation process, but for many of these law students, they got to do a social experiment on themselves. How did their visions of what they would do with more time square with their actual practice? And it may not surprise you to hear that there was a gap between their hopes and their reality. results varied. Some were able to implement some of those things that they thought they would want to do. Some actually lost even the few good habits that they had built up when they were busier. And all found it more difficult than they expected to live the life they thought they would if they just had more time. Because when the theoretical constructions of our minds are placed into the crucible of reality, an observation bubbles up. The barrier to living their best life was not primarily time. It wasn't some external restraint. It was actually something in them in their willpower. This was an important realization to make, one you might miss if you don't stop and reflect on what actually happened. Now, I'm picking on these poor law students, but of course, this isn't about them. I'm about to pull the old Romans to switcheroo on all you all. When you pass judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. This is about all of us. This is about me. This is about you. This is a human phenomenon. We have theoretical ideas of how things are, how we are, what makes us tick, what's holding us back, why we're not driving the way we'd like. But usually, when truly pass through the litmus test of reality, they fall flat to lesser or greater degrees, particularly when it comes to judging our own heart, our own character. So, how can Nehemiah 9 give us a model of how we can see? reality better. The book of Nehemiah is set after the exile. The exile is this extremely important interpretive moment in the life of the history of Israel. Before that, many had come to the conclusion that Israel was untouchable. They had, you know, kept away the Assyrians, you know, a couple of centuries before. You know, we are God's people. God is on our side. God cannot be defeated. Therefore, we cannot be defeated. We are saved by our very heritage as descendants of Abraham. But the truth was very different. Israel had transgressed the covenant God had made with them, and they would suffer the just consequences of their sin and their failure to keep the covenant. And so when the people started being carted off to Babylon, there rose up a bunch of false prophets who said, you'll be returning very quickly. You're not really defeated. You're coming back soon. Because they couldn't reconcile the idea of God still being good while Israel lay defeated. But they were not seeing right. In stark contrast, Jeremiah stands up and proclaims that Israel was in exile because God is good. Not despite of it. God is God of Babylon too. And though Babylon is an evil empire, God used Babylon as his instrument to mete out his justice. It would be 70 years of exile, a lifetime. But yes, God's mercy and faithfulness would not be exhausted, and they would ultimately prevail. The people had not kept their side of the covenant, but God would keep his. He would be faithful. And so when the latest empire, Persia, took over, They sent Israel back to their land, back to Jerusalem to rebuild it. And it's at this moment of restoration that we meet this narrative in Nehemiah. And at this point, it was essential that they understood their history rightly, and they knew what it revealed about God's character and what it revealed about their character. We didn't read the whole chapter uh, for time's sake, but the story starts with God and creation. It moves through the calling of Abraham, through the exodus, the giving of the law, entering the promised land, and on through Israel his, Israel's history. And throughout, the pattern is clear. God is faithful. God is merciful. God never fails to restore his people. But we are repeatedly stiff-necked, presumptuous, stubborn, disobedient, the text really hones in on this cycle of God blessing Israel, our mistakes bringing us trouble, and God's merciful restoration when we turn back to him. And it's interesting because the text starts relatively specific. It's talking about Abraham, about Moses, about Egypt. But as the storytelling amplifies, it actually loses its specificity. It gets really nondescript. Listen to this again, starting at verse 26, and I've abbreviated it a bit. They were disobedient, they are forefathers, were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. They cried out to you, and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors. But after they had rest, they did evil again, and you abandoned them to their enemies. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them to turn back to your law that they acted presumptuously and sinned against your rules. Therefore, you gave them into the hands of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. There's no names named. There's no events. There's no places and times mentioned in this part. It's not trying to be specific because it's not trying to talk about just something that happened in the past. It's trying to expose the pattern that is at risk of continuing to this day, a pattern of our behavior and character and a pattern of God's behavior and character. This is the past revealing the present. This is what is at risk here and now. This is what we must actively respond to today. And the people in Nehemiah 9 respond by reaffirming their dependence on God, by reaffirming the covenant. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, as it is said. If the pattern is not good, you have to notice it to break it. We need to stop and deliberately reflect on the reality of the past to counteract our constant delusion that somehow the future will be different better without anything changing. I have a little joke that past Pete is a slacker who should have used his time better. He's he's the worst. But future Pete, oh, future Pete, I'm very thankful for future Pete. He's entirely diligent, competent, and more than capable of managing anything that's left for him. I, I like future Pete. Whatever the case, present Pete deserves a break. The, the delusion at the core of that joke is that with, with no intentionality, I'll magically be more responsible in the future than anything that the past has demonstrated. Things will be different. This is a pretty broadly distributed uh, delusion in differing ways. An overestimation of our character, which is not rooted in reality. And I think it affects us when we're not paying attention. I know an example for me is that I can be tempted to think that my life would be better without God. That if I wasn't weighed down by the restraints of faith and through my natural brilliance or something, I would soar like an eagle. If I didn't have to care about the big picture things of God or didn't feel compelled to be committed to the Christian community, even when it's hard, if I didn't care whether people knew God, if I could turn off the switch of of having to love people, if I could define my own sense of right and wrong unhindered, if I didn't have all these obligations, then, then I would truly be free. And being free, I would make of myself, of course, an amazing life. It's the ancient lie of the serpent. You know, you are more dependable than God is. Declare independence from God and flourish on the strength of your own back. And so long as I'm not paying attention, so long as I don't test it against reality, I can be tempted by this thinking. But as soon as I stop and actually consider how I actually have acted when I don't have any restraints or exterior sources of purpose, when I have no sense of duty, then my delusion falls apart pretty rapidly. You know, I'd like to think that future Pete, without any obligations or restraints, will, of course, pursue amazing, meaningful ventures and be at peace with whatever level of success he has. Never mind the fact that past Pete, whenever he's managed to Break the shackles of responsibility for a time. He mostly just watched funny animal videos on the internet or rewatched The Office again and felt kind of sad. I mean, of course, Past Pete did that. He's, he's kind of a loser. But when I stop to reflect, it's obvious how much I would flounder without the life God has called me to. But I've got to stop and reflect. And it's important to reflect. Not only to get a right estimation of ourselves, but to remember all the things God has done in our lives. You know, God has shown up in my life in profound ways. In the family he's given me, the pathway he's led me on towards my current vocation, financially, providing in health matters in my family, showing up in his presence. Pretty much everything I value in my life is intimately connected to my faith in God. But it's amazing how absent all this can be in my mind when the delusion sets in. How forgetful I can be. How disconnected I can be from the reality of God's goodness. We can be amazingly forgetful of what God has done. I've watched as friends personally experience powerful miracles, truly miraculous healings, powerful experiences of God's presence only to slowly drift away from the faith. I think this is why Jesus was never that interested in giving people a sign when they asked for it. You know, it's not that they deny the healing particularly or deny the experience that they had. They just think about it less and less as they determine how they want to live their lives. You know, in the desert, Israel forgot the mighty deeds God had done in Egypt. And sometimes I wonder how many times God has answered my prayers, but I didn't even notice because I forgot that I prayed for it. Without reflection, we do not give God the due that is owed to him for his mercy and grace that he's shown us. By ourselves, we naturally inflate our own character and deflate God's character. We need to stop and reflect on what's gone in the past, interpret it with God's own spirit so we can test our instincts against the crucible of reality, cutting down our bloated estimations of ourselves and magnifying our anemic estimation of God. Because when we do this, we uncover the gospel, the good news that sets us free. This is what happens in Nehemiah 9. It would have been so easy having rebuilt Jerusalem, built up its high walls to go back to a sense of security which was dependent on our own supposed greatness, our ability to build great walls with maybe God passively blessing our greatness. But that's the anti-gospel, the untruth which deceives us by telling us that we've got it all sorted with no or minimal effort from God. And it comes with the veneer of something we want to hear. You're great. You're self-sufficient. You've got it sorted. It sounds good to our ears, but if we stop and reflect on what that untruth has done to us in the past, it exposes the lie. Israel in Nehemiah 9 devoted themselves once again to the covenant after hearing their history. Because they realized upon hearing it that they had to be dependent on God. Because when we seek to be dependent on ourselves in practice, it destroys us, as it did for Israel. We end up weighed down by the weight of justifying our own existence. And we leave a trail of brokenness on ourselves and on others whenever we try to justify our own existence on the strength of our own backs. In Nehemiah's time, they may not have had the fullness of the gospel because Jesus had not come yet, but the character of God was the same. And the strands of the gospel, which would be fulfilled in Jesus, were there. We are trapped in our brokenness. And God, being a just God, cannot ignore sin. But due to God's generous character, his mercy and his grace always have the final word. And he is inviting you now, regardless of your past failings, to turn from sin, to repent, and to devote devote yourself to him and find life. When we stop and truly, by God's own spirit, see reality for what it is, we find good news. It's like someone who realizes that there's something inside them going wrong, something wrong with their health, something wrong with their body. And there might be a multitude of voices willing to tell them that that they're fine not to worry, And it might feel like that's what you wanna hear, everything's fine, but it does not satisfy. And following that advice is potentially disastrous. What that person really needs is the qualified specialist who can give an accurate, satisfying diagnosis which matches reality and a comprehensive cure. That is good news, what the specialist gives. And when we refuse to reflect, we end up satisfying ourselves with the multitude of voices, internal and external, which only put a superficial layer of smoothness over our reality. But when we stop and truly reflect and see rightly, we are better equipped to hear the voice of the one qualified specialist, the one true physician of our souls, Jesus Christ. And he gives us an accurate, satisfying diagnosis which matches our reality. And he gives us a comprehensive cure. That is good news. If we cannot stop to see reality for what it is, We cannot see the gospel for what it is. So how then shall we go about reflecting on reality as it has been in in the past? The practical suggestions on how to do this, I think, are are relatively well-known and straightforward. I don't think this requires too much imagination. I think it requires implementation. Get a journal. Use it. Set up regular times to stop and reflect. Keep those times. Protect them. Decide a structure. Pick questions you want to regularly ask yourself. Use others to ask you those questions. Get a spiritual director. Get in a triad. Make choices about how you live your life that make sense of that reflected reality, not following the whims of the delusions of a mind stuck only in the present tense. But I do want to throw in one particular suggestion in the mix, because I think it's often missed. and it's this, monthly quiet days, where if a day, whole day is too intimidating, maybe a few hours, and if months seem too secular because they're named after pagan Roman emperors and you're a good Anglican, then you could organize it according to the seasons of the church calendar or something like that, but something in the vicinity of monthly. I mean, it's important to reflect daily or weekly but we don't have the capacity to really reflect on the level we need to on a daily or weekly basis reflecting annually is great too like an annual retreat but by itself it's too infrequent we end up putting pressure on ourselves to solve all of our problems in one big go and we make these big bold commitments that for the entire year or for the rest of our lives and we can't keep them and we feel guilty you know new year's resolutions tend to last about one month. I think monthly is a good rhythm. If you prioritize it, you can take extended time each month to really reflect properly. And you can commit to to new habits, new responses to God as an experiment for the next month. In my experience of doing this the last number of years, it's a much more grace-filled process. You're more likely to keep your commitment for one month or one season. And even if you fail, You experience less guilt because you can just come back to it next month and continue iterating. So I encourage you to consider implementing monthly quiet days into your routine of reflection. But regardless of how we do it, we need to stop and reflect on what God has done and who we have been so we can counteract our propensity to delude ourselves, choosing instead to see reality for what it is and live in a way that makes sense of the reality, not of the delusion. In doing so we find good news, a clear and accurate diagnosis for our basic unease alongside God's all encompassing cure in Christ Jesus. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done throughout history and in the lives of all the people gathered here online, may we see what you have done and see ourselves right now so that we might turn to you in full dependence and find life there. Lord, we turn to you for you are the source of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.